Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Judy Battalion. Judy was born and raised in Montreal, where she grew up speaking English, French, Yiddish, and Hebrew, and trying to stay warm. She studied the history of science at Harvard, then moved to London to pursue a PhD in art history. All the while, Judy worked as a curator, researcher, editor, lecturer, comic, MC, scriptwriter, dramaturge, performer, actor, producer, and translator. Eventually, she transformed these experiences into material and wrote essays and articles for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vogue, the Forward, Salon, the Jerusalem Post, along with many other publications. Welcome, Judy. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start a little uh, bit at the beginning. You grew up speaking Yiddish uh, among many other languages, as I've noted in your introduction. Um, so what is your early connection to Yiddish? And I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to mention your brother. Okay, well, I'm older than him. So <laughs> my Yiddish came before his by three years. Um, Yiddish, Yiddish is given mein ersten Sprach. Yiddish was my first language. My grandmother really took care of me from a very young age and spoke to me in Yiddish. Um, so that is quite unusual. Um, and, uh, and Yiddish was spoken in the home. We lived with my grandparents throughout most of mine and my brother, Ellie of Yid Life Crisis's fame. Um, through our youth, our, our grandparents lived with us or we spent a lot of time with them and they, they spoke Yiddish and my parents uh, spoke Yiddish to their parents. So it was around us um, uh, growing up all the time. But on, uh, in addition to that, we also, uh, both myself and my brother, Ellie, went to a um, quite unusual uh, Jewish school in Montreal, JPPS and Bialik. The, it was a Jewish uh, folk show. And we studied Yiddish, I think it was every day from pre-kindergarten through uh, in, in Quebec, you go up to 11th grade. Um, Yiddish was a mandatory part of the curriculum. And, you know, so one night I'd be studying physics homework and the next night was Yiddish grammar. Um, and it was a, a unusual secular Jewish education that was very focused on language and literature. So I'm gonna now pick up um, from that. Sure. On your bio, which I left out. Um, when, as you write in 2007, during a phase of your career, promiscuity, as you say, you were doing research on strong Jewish women at the British Library, and you happened to come across a dusty old Yiddish book, Women in the Ghettos, a Yiddish thriller about ghetto girls who hid revolvers and teddy bears, bribed Nazis with whiskey and pastry, and blew up German supply trains, became the inspiration for the light of the days, the untold story of women resistance fighters in Hitler's ghettos, which you have just published. So, Tell me how you discovered the work and what compelled you to write the ensuing book. Okay, this is this is the long answer. Um, uh, I, I this is fourteen years ago. I was living in London. I was exploring different elements of my Jewish identity, um, including this very issue of fight or flight, and I was interested as as a Jewish person um, with my own my own legacy how I how I reacted to dangers in the world. It was something I was thinking about a lot. And I, I wanted to write a performance piece at the time about, about this. And I, I wanted to focus on a character of a strong Jewish woman, a real character from history. 
And the first one to come to mind was Hannah Senesch, um, who I studied in fifth grade at my Folkschule. Um, Hannah Senesch, uh, for those who don't know, she was a young Hungarian Jew who uh, moved to what was then Palestine before the war, before World War II. And during the war, she decided to join the Allied forces and she became a paratrooper to go back to Europe to fight the Nazis. Um, and legend had it that, you know, she was caught, but when she was shot, she looked the, the, her shooters in the eye. Um, she was, I had always learned about her as the, the symbol of, of courage and bravery and Jewish pride. Um, and she'd always been taught to me as a child, at least, as a hero, she was a hero figure. But I wanted to understand not just Hannah Senesch the hero, I wanted to understand Hannah Senesch the person. I was fascinated by, uh, I mean, what, what, what was her psychology? What was the personality? Who does this? Who chooses to go back to Eastern Europe and fight? Um, and so this is what brought me to the British Library to do some research on Hannah Senesch. And I looked her up in the catalog. The British Library did not have very many books on Hannah Senesch. So I just ordered whatever books they had and uh, picked up the stack. And there, I noticed one of them was, you know, it was like an old book. It was, had that fabric cover. It was, you know, dusty and yellowing. And, um, and I opened it up and it was in Yiddish. It was called Freuen in the Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. And I flipped through um, looking for Hannah Senesch, um, because I do know Yiddish. I don't use it very often. My Yiddish was definitely rusty at that point, but I'm flipping through the book looking for Hannah Senesch's name. And I notice she's only in the last chapter in front of her is a whole book, you know, over 150 pages of stories of other Jewish women in the ghettos. But th the chapter titles are things like Gewehr weapons, ammunition, uh, the fight in Vilna, the fight in Beijing. Um, and I start reading through this book in whatever capacity I can. And I realize this is an incredible story about, it was a kind of collection. It wasn't a full story. It was snippets of articles or testimonies um, in Yiddish of young Jewish women who defied the Nazis. And I was stunned. These were stories of Jewish women who were blowing up German supply trains, working as courier girls, smuggling weapons and information and money and people and fake IDs. Um, and I, I, I never heard anything like this. And I, I, I knew then this was something I, I, I had to learn more about. In, in the book, I think it tells the uh, um, stories of about 16 women, in addition to Hannah. Uh, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of these women, maybe their backstories and um, some of their heroics. Most of these, I, as you mentioned, are, are women who were unknown um, and then they played such um, an outsized role in the resistance. I mean, I had never heard of any of these women. Um, 
So uh, for instance, I, sure, I'll tell you about a few of them that were in, that were from, in particular, from this Yiddish book. My, my, my book isn't an exact translation, of right. course. It was inspired by, and then I added other characters and, and did a lot more research. Um, but so for instance, one woman, her name is Frumka Plotnitska. Um, she was a leader in the youth movements in Poland in the 1930s. She was in her 20s. She was about 25 when war broke out. And um, the, the um, leaders of the movements said, everyone run east to the Russian front. She went with everyone that way. She ended up um, near Pinsk, which had become then Belarusian territory. It was actually near her parents' home. Um, she stayed there for a few weeks and then felt that it, it wasn't right. She couldn't, she couldn't leave. So she smuggled herself back into Nazi-occupied Poland and went to Warsaw uh, on her, her own will, her own accord, and um, became a leader in the Warsaw ghetto, um, ran soup kitchens, uh, you know, was a moral and spiritual leader, led education programs, um, dealt with Jewish and Polish and German authority figures. Um, she ended up leaving the ghetto when it was Warsaw Ghetto was formed. She, you know, covered her Jewish features, traveled across the country, teaching, going to visit other ghettos, keeping communities connected, bringing information, um, bringing books and educational materials that they were, they were publishing their own books in the Warsaw Ghetto um, and giving lectures, giving seminars. Um, the youth movement then turned into uh, more of a militia in late 41, 42. And she became, uh, uh, she was one of the first people to smuggle weapons into the Warsaw Ghetto in a sack of potatoes. She hid guns under the potatoes. She was then stationed in the town of Bejin, where she was a leader of the underground. She learned to use weapons and help plan a revolt. Um, so sorry, am I, <laughs> I'm going off a lot because I get so involved in their lives. Um, and you know, she, she was really a leader of the underground. She was known as Dimame um, across, across, uh, you know, among hundreds and hundreds. I, I mean, she was, and, and I'd never, ever heard of her. Um, moving on, there were so many others. The, the central character of my book is a woman named Renya Kukielka. Um, Renya was not a move. She was not even part of the youth movement. She was actually only about 15 when, when war broke out. She was from a small town outside. Um, not, I, I drove there from Krakow, not too far from Krakow. And um, she, she escaped from the ghetto in her town. She jumped off. She tried to get on trains. People recognized her. She literally leapt off moving trains. She found her way. She pretended to be Catholic, got a job working as a housemaid in a part German family, tracked down her sister, who was part of an underground uh, cell, again in this town of Bejin, um, went there, became, they, they needed someone to go to Warsaw to help collect materials for a revolt that they, that they wanted to stage in Bejin. And Renya became the courier girl, um, doing trips back and forth between Bejin and Warsaw, smuggling, I mean, I mean, stashes of fake ID, money in her garter belt. She went to cemeteries, found weapons dealers, bought guns, taped them to her torso, 
um, and did these trips back and forth trying to help arm the resistance and, and, and help rescue Jews um, with fake papers and, and planning bus routes and, and all kinds of organized defiant work. Um, I can go on. I can tell you about more of them. <laughs> I don't know how many you want me to talk. To um, talk go, 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 for, go for one more. That's fine. I mean, I think it's, these are just such incredible stories that you're telling. Um, and it's exciting to hear you um, give, give a little snippet of, of some of these women. I'll, I'll tell you a bit about, uh, I, I don't even know who to pick. I mean, I'm like, <laughs> like in love with all of them. I'll tell you a bit about someone, Vitka Kempner. She was, I, I think she was 19 when the war started. She escaped, uh, the, the Jews in her town were locked in a synagogue. She climbed out the bathroom window and fled and ran to Vilna, joined the underground there, um, dyed her hair blonde. This is a big part of the story, the Jewish women doing this underground work. We, we can come back to it after, <laughs> but they had to uh, look Catholic. They had to look Christian because they were leaving the ghettos. Um, so she dyed her hair and ended up, you know, um, she was given a mission to blow up a train, a German train carrying supplies and soldiers. And each night she would leave the ghetto and go to the tracks and try to find a good spot where she could plant a bomb. And it, one night set out with a couple of other Jewish kids uh, makeshift bomb. The, her her best friend and fellow rebel Rushka Korzak had found a book in a Vilna library that happened to have instructions in, in, in actually from Finland about how to make bombs with diagrams. She'd brought it to the ghetto. A group of them had got together, made this makeshift explosive. They left the ghetto one night and Vika placed it on the tracks and blew up a train. Um, and uh, according to certain accounts, um, that this was the first time, the first partisan act of blowing up a train in all of occupied Europe. This was in the summer of 1942. It's, it's so incredible. And I think people are so surprised to learn of these women and the strength um, of, of their actions and their conviction. Um, there's, you, you cite something by Emanuel Ringelbaum, um, who was uh, the eminent Warsaw ghetto chronicler. And I'm just gonna quote, if I may, from your introduction. And he um, wrote about the courier girls at the time, without a murmur, without a second's he hesitation, they accept and carry out the most dangerous missions. How many times have they looked death in the eyes? The story of the Jewish women will be a glorious page in the history of Jewry during the present war. So I can only imagine what this means to you to read this now and to suggest that you really realize what Ringelbaum was hoping that um, this, you know, that these stories would live on for generations. I mean, the even in that Yiddish book I found, I don't know if I've mentioned this, it was published in 1946. And the intention was to tell American Jews of these incredible exploits, these incredible things that young Jewish women did in Poland. And in that book, there, there's kind of an assumption that, well, these women will become you know, the sort of uh, core of our folklore. These women will become names in our, in our in our history. And 
finally, I hope I'm, I'm helping to, to give them that up, the place that I, I think they deserve. And, and I think that this work speaks to, you know, how we need to encourage further exploration of, you know, women through and, and their work in resistance and, and other aspects of culture through their memoir and reportage. Um, in translation, were you surprised at, at how either hard or how much of it you were able to find? I, I was the latter. I was surprised at how much I was able to find because when I first went into this, I thought that that Yiddish book, I thought that was it. Maybe it mentioned maybe 30, 40 names and it just had tiny tidbits. And I, I, and I, I mean, I'd, this was 2007. It was a long time after the war, relatively. I'd never heard any, I'd never heard of these people. Um, so how, what, what, but, but it turned out as soon as I really started digging, I mean, with literally within days, I mean, I found dozens and dozens and dozens of memoirs and testimonies that, that these women had written and had left. Uh, of course, many of them were killed. So for those I had to work, I found some um, booklets of eulogies. Friends had written about them sort of in, in the late forties around that time, friends who had survived. So I was working with a lot of, um, I mean, I, 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 in fact, many of these women had written memoirs that had been published. Um, my main character, Renya, had a book published, her book was published in Israel and even in the US in 1947, and it just got lost. Mm -hmm. it, it really fell into obscurity. Um, and so, yes, I was, I was stunned by the sheer number of women I found who participated in, in organized resistance. Um, and at how much material there was out there. And were you surprised where your work took you and did you end up telling the story you imagined? I, I don't even, I don't know what I imagined. It was so <laughs> long ago. Um, I, I think, you know, I think, I, I was, I mean, I was very surprised at the scale of, at the Jewish underground at all. It's not something, you know, I'd heard of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Of course I had. Um, but I actually didn't really know what happened in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. I'd never studied, uh, despite all my years at Jewish school, I, I'd never studied the details of that. Um, I had no idea that over 90 European ghettos had armed Jewish underground units. That, you know, thousands, 30,000 Jews joined partisan detachments. Um, there were rescue networks operating, I mean, in Warsaw alone, that were helping people say between 10 and 15,000 Jews in hiding in Warsaw. Um, so, you know, these are relatively large numbers. And I was, I was, I was stunned at, um, at that I'd not heard this, this side of the story. It, it is an amazing story. And I, um, I have to ask one, one last question, if I may, again, borrowing from something that you wrote, which I was really struck by, um, where you talk about the time you were in England and you're being um, sort of so out with your otherness. Um, and I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about that um, and, and how that may have allowed you to explore and 
grapple with the lives of these women who on the other side of it had to work to pass yeah. in order to fulfill their work. Yeah, I, I, I had, um, I had been living in England and uh, this was a number of years ago now, but I, I had felt very, I, I'd received a lot of comments about my Jewish appearance and they were often, I, I don't know, they were very, unco- it was uncomfortable for me. Um, and I didn't know how to interpret that. And that's part of what led me to write this piece in the first place. I, 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 I never under I had a lot of trouble for myself judging what was really, was it really dangerous? Was it anti-Semitic? Was it not? Um, how do I react to these things? Do I, do I fight or flight? Um, and it was the first time in my life that it, it was very apparent to me that I, I looked very Jewish. I appeared very Jewish. Um, I had grown up in a family of Holocaust survivors, if I hadn't mentioned that, and in a community uh, very, and a very much a, a tight-knit Jewish community in Montreal. I had studied on the East Coast in the U.S. I, I'd always lived in communities that were quite Jewish. So it was the first time in my own life that I really... Um, I noticed my difference. I, I noticed that other people saw me as looking very Jewish. Um, and, and again, that, so that, that's what, what led to all of this. And so what's so interesting is that only years after digging into this story, I mean, years took me to understand this, that what, as I was saying before, many of these women, the whole way that they were able to function as underground operatives was um, they had to leave the ghettos, of course. They had to go out and, and, and you know, blow up trains or deliver information or bring support or bring medications um, or bring people back and forth or help people escape from slave labor camps into the forest. Um, so for women, for Jewish women to be able to do this work, they could not look Jewish. They had to pass um, they had to pass for generally for uh, Christian polls. And so most of the women that did this work were not like me. <laughs> um, they had light features. They, um, they, they had the look um, they used to call it. They, they looked good, they used to call it. And those that didn't um, dyed their hair blonde. They used soap to you know, clean up their skin. They borrowed clothes. Um, and, and handbags that would have been worn by affluent Catholic Polish women at the time. The reason that many women got involved in these particular roles in the underground was because, because of this need to perform this passing. Women were not circumcised. Men were. Men had a marker of their Judaism on their body. And, and there was, they did pants drop tests um, if someone suspected someone of being a Jew, they, they would tell them to drop their pants. And women didn't have to, women didn't have this. They didn't have that marker on their body. Also, interestingly to me, um, in, in, in the 30s, many um, families, they sent their sons to Jewish school, but they sent their daughters to Polish public school. School was mandatory for girls as well. Um, but families that couldn't afford it, they, they sent their girls to public schools. So these girls, this age bracket that I write about, they had all studied in, in Polish public school. They spoke 
Polish with the Polish accent. They, they talk about this all the time, not with what they call the creaky Yiddish accent. They spoke a Polish Polish. They had Polish friends. They were acculturated. They were, you know, they, they, they were around Catholic Poles all the time. And they, um, they understood their customs. They were better able to emulate them. So for those reasons, all these things helped in women creating this passing disguise, this performance. And, and I guess my last question for you is, were they acknowledged, celebrated? Did, you know, did they know each other? Do you have any sense of that relationship? When? While they were doing, I guess it would be after they were doing this work. Um, you know, did they, were they doing this in relative isolation? Um, and again, were they acknowledged for this work in their lifetime for those who survived? So they, so I, we're talking of hundreds, if not thousands of women. Right. So many of these women were part of this, these youth movements. And I, in my story, I really focus on women who are part of um, the generally socialist, labor Zionist, a few Bundists, um, the left-leaning secular socialist movements. So they did, a lot of them did know each other and they were, they were an organized movement before the war. And that is why, that is one of the reasons why they were able to become organized militias because they knew, they did know each other. They worked together and people like Frumka, who I was talking about earlier, you know, especially early on in the war was going from group to group in different cities and different ghettos, making sure that these national connections still existed and were alive. That was the women were this, um, someone referred to them as the nerve centers of the movement. They, they made sure people stayed connected. They were like the internet of the time, um, you know? So they did know each other, many of them, not everyone. And there are different youth movements. There are many different youth movements. Um, many of them didn't get along with each other. That's also part of this story. Um, so not everyone was working together. And some of the stories I tell are, are you know, one-off events um, or people who were kind of going rogue, but not really, they really were, they were affiliated with each other. Um, so they did know each other. The second part of your question, were they celebrated? I think that's what you were asking. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, <laughs> I'd never heard of them. Um, I, I think that, you know, in, Immediately after the war, a number of these women who moved to what was then Palestine did go on speaking tours. They were, they, because they were part of the labor movement and the labor party sort of um, promoted this was an incredible story. And they, they, they promoted their, their, their stories. They sent them out to speak about it. Um, but that lasted a very short while. And, and then these stories got buried. Um, for many reasons, which I also get into <laughs> in the right. book, both personal reasons and political reasons uh, and zeitgeist reasons. And, um, and were they, I mean, I, I, there's one story, you know, one of these women, I mean, incredible career, her, her son had to go apply for, you know, a partisan medal for her in Israel, like a few years ago, because she refused to do it. 
Um, you know, there were they sell. I mean, I don't. <laughs> there weren't many outward celebrations. Yeah, I didn't. It's a bad word. I realized. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but I just yeah sort of wanted to um, extract that sense of yeah how this all played out for them. I mean, it, it, I, I end the last part of the book is um, stories of the women who survived. And I talk about what happened to them after the war. I, I was extremely fascinated in how they went on to live their lives. Um, and it's different for each of them. You know, some of them really buried this part of their lives and, and really moved on. I, you know, I, I mean, their families barely knew anything about it. I send their families information about them. Um, even though their families knew them, of course, they, they, right. they really knew so little about what their mothers or grandmothers did during the war. I, I literally send them archival materials from their own and publish materials of these women that they didn't even know. In other cases, the families do know a lot that these women or there are some of them became very involved in Holocaust education or uh, Holocaust writing, Holocaust literature. So in those cases, um, the families knew a bit more. Um, I'm thinking of one documentary now. This is what I was going to say. Uh, it's a, in Hebrew, I, I haven't seen it in a while. And a, one of the women who was a fighter in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, at the end of the piece, she was saying they were invited to Poland um, I, I don't know, I guess this was about 10, 15 years ago, to receive a medal for their, for their service in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And this woman was so upset by this. And she felt like, why do I have to go back to Poland where I, where I left forever to get a medal? How come, how come no one in Israel's ever given me a medal? Um, so maybe when you asked before if these, I, I think many of them didn't feel like they're their work was acknowledged, mm -hmm. but it's different. It's different depending on the woman and on the context. And and I guess it it would be would be again remiss not to say that they didn't do this for um, that. They did it for the cause, not for the the acknowledgement necessarily. Yeah, they thought they were going to be killed. Yeah. They didn't think they were going to live. Often the issue was they, they didn't make plans for survival. They sort of planned out suicide missions and then they survived and they, they didn't have the food. They didn't have the supplies. Like this was part of the, part of the story. They certainly did not do this for recognition. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah. And I, so I didn't, I, I also didn't want to suggest that as well. Um, but you've, you've done an incredible thing in telling these stories and telling them so well. Um, again, the book is The Light of Days, The Untold Story of the Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos. It's available through bookstores all over the country now and also at shop.yiddishbookcenter.org. Judy, thank you so much for your work and for taking time to visit today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexa Sewing. And until next time, be well and be healthy.